Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. That's kind of the verse that we're basing ourselves out of this morning. I hope you are all ready for the Thanksgiving holiday, that you have been spending some time thinking about what you're thankful for. I hope you'll spend some time uh, over the holiday even talking about with family, with friends, about what you're thankful for. I think it is a helpful exercise to have an intentional time where we remember to be grateful. Uh, If I were a a smarter person, I would have prepared something specifically on Thanksgiving for this weekend, but that is not what we did. Uh, We are finishing up. uh, We've been spending five weeks on sanctification, on uh, what it means uh, to be sanctified, what it means to go through the process of becoming more like Christ. And we're going to finish that up today. with uh, specifically looking at something that we should avoid in order to be more like Christ. So I'm going to read this morning uh, from Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Father, thank you that we have been set free from sin, that we've become slaves to you now instead. And it's strange to know that slavery to you brings with it uh, freedom, um, freedom from uh, the tyranny of sin. Uh, We pray that we would be sanctified, that we would be made more like Christ um, in all that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, We had already looked at a few weeks ago the primary tools that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. Uh, Sanctification is an internal, supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. It is something that only God can do inside of you. Just like your salvation, you needed a miracle of God for you to be justified before God. Just like it will be a miracle that God performs when you are glorified in heaven, when you are made perfect, it is similarly a miracle, a work of God in you to make you more like Christ. The difference with sanctification, one, is that it happens over the course of time. It is a process. And two, the Bible is very clear. The means by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us is, at least in part, through our own effort, through our own work. We're told to work at these various things. And we looked at the five most essential tools that the Spirit uses to sanctify us. He uses scripture, prayer, fellowship, obedience, and providence. Literally anything can, uh, can help to sanctify us. And then last week, we looked at Kind of a few random things, a few extra things, things that maybe aren't those five essential things, but we don't get to talk about quite as often. Last week, uh, we talked about the one another's. Uh, We talked about giving, how God uses uh, our gifts in order to sanctify us, and we talked about joy. And uh, today, we are talking about some of the negative commands in Scripture. If Obedience is one of the essential tools God uses to sanctify us. Then a lack of obedience, disobedience, would obviously keep us from being sanctified. And so part 
of being sanctified is not only to do what God has commanded you to do, because that is part of how the Holy Spirit makes you to be more like Christ, but part of being sanctified is to avoid what the Bible tells you to avoid. We don't really like being told what not to do. You have probably seen a sign outside of a movie theater or something like that that said no outside food or drink. And if you didn't take that as a personal challenge, then you are a better person than I am. I don't know if you have ever tried to walk into a movie theater holding your drink on the outside of your body while the ticket takers over there trying to hand them right so you can sneak it in. Who are they to tell you what you can and can't bring in? I paid for that. But we don't like it, do we? We want to be able to do what we want. And yet the Bible has a lot to say about what we shouldn't do. Galatians 5.24 tells us that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've put to death the passions and desires in us. Ephesians 4.22, we're told to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Colossians 3.5 says something similar. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. All of these various verses, there's a lot more. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, etc., etc. All of them not only include this general command to put to death these evil desires that are in you, but all of them include a long list of things that we should be avoiding. Sexual morality, idolatry, jealousy, drunkenness, divisions, stealing, foolish talk, anger, slander, etc. There are all kinds of things that you are not supposed to be doing, and you already know that. You're aware of that. And today, we were going to be focusing on two specific things, and as it turns out, the first one was so long and so detailed that we're only going to get into one. And uh, I mentioned this a few times, but a couple of months ago I asked you guys uh, what you might like to study in between, in between books. Um, we had finished the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start Ruth in the new year. We'll have a Christmas series starting up in December. But we had a few weeks in between to study. And someone asked if we could do at least a little bit of a study on addiction. And I'll be honest, I was pretty nervous about diving into that because I don't have any kind of expertise on that subject. I tried as best as I could to become an expert on that, and I was convinced that I would only have 10 minutes maybe at most to talk about addiction. But that is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to answer four questions about addiction in order to help us understand it better. And to understand how to help others who are addicted as well. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, an estimated 19.7 million Americans have at least one addiction. 19.7 million people in our country have at least one addiction. From 1999 to 2017, more than 700,000 Americans have died from drug overdose. Alcohol and drug addiction cost the U.S. economy an estimated $600 billion every year. Billion with a, with a B. That is a big number that is costing the economy. I realized this week as I was trying to study this subject how ignorant I was about the nature of addiction and its treatment. Which 
surprised me a little bit for a couple of reasons. One, the nature of pastoral ministry is you talk to every kind of person. You talk to any number of people who might have had uh, difficulties um, or, or problems of some kind. And it seems worthwhile that I would be prepared to talk about this a little bit. But maybe more specifically, more personally, I know people who are addicts. I have real, actual friends who have struggled with addiction. Probably you do also. I think a lot of people know someone or perhaps themselves have struggled with an addiction. I think the holidays in particular bring out a certain kind of anxiety sometimes in people. And you see family members who you might long have known or perhaps just suspected. Like, do they, do they have a problem? Is there some kind of issue? And so it seems clear and obvious that we should all know something about the subject. We should all know the best way to help someone. What does the Bible say about addiction? As it turns out, not a ton. The, the kind of drug use there is today wasn't really going on in biblical times, and so we don't get specific verses about addiction. But I think we can make a number of inferences from other, maybe kind of similar uh, biblical texts. The Bible, though it doesn't talk about addiction, does talk very frequently about drunkenness. And there are, there are all kinds of verses, but Ephesians 5.18 is maybe one of the most clear verses about drunkenness because it also goes into what you should do instead. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And the idea is that these, these two things are at odds with each other, being filled with wine or being filled with the Spirit. You can't, you can't have both at the same time. It makes me think of Galatians 5.16, where Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. The Spirit and the flesh are at odds, is the idea. And with, with drunkenness, in particular in Ephesians 5.18, we see that you can't be filled with the Spirit that's, or, while being drunk. That's debauchery. And I think it stands to reason that if we shouldn't be drunk, we also shouldn't be addicted to alcohol. We get some other verses that help kind of explain this a little bit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul is specifically talking about sexual immorality when he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And even though he's talking about a different sin, again, I think we can, we can infer that that same principle can apply to any kind of addiction. That we should not be controlled or dominated by anything. But then we have any number of verses that talk about how salvation from our sins fundamentally involves freedom from them. That's part of what we read this morning in Romans 6.22. That we have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And that leads to our sanctification and eventually our end, eternal life. 
Galatians 5.1, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I love the idea that freedom is an end unto itself. It was for freedom that Christ freed you. And now the command to you as a believer in Christ is don't submit again to slavery. Don't be I think what we're talking about today, don't be controlled by anything other than Christ. As I was trying to figure out what I would say about addiction, I was talking to a a good friend of mine, and I I half-jokingly told him, I think what I'm just going to tell everyone is that you should be the best Christian you can possibly be and then do whatever addiction science tells you that you should do. And in reality, that's basically what I'm going to be telling you this morning, though in, in a longer format. But it is hard to figure out the best way to deal with an addiction yourself or to help someone else who is dealing with an addiction. And I'm fortunate. A friend of mine is a lawyer, and as part of his job, he, uh, he works with people who are addicts all the time. And I've talked with him about the experience of talking with addicts and, and what they say about their own life. And he has, as, again, as part of his job, they have uh, occasion to bring in an expert witness on addiction, Dr. Richard Sandor. And my friend has talked to Dr. Sandor frequently about addiction. Dr. Sandor is a psychiatrist with over 25 years' experience in the addiction field. He served as medical director at several nationally accredited drug and alcohol treatment programs in Southern California, served as the president of the California Society of Addiction Medicine. And so I, I had a number of conversations with my friend about what he'd said. As it turns out, Dr. Sandor has written a book called Thinking Simply About Addiction. It's not a very long book. It took me two days to read it this week. If you read fast, I'm sure you could knock it out in one. I would highly recommend it, and a lot of the information I'm going to be talking about for the rest of today is going to be based on Dr. Sandor's research. He's been involved with it for a long time, and in Southern California is one of the foremost experts on addiction. And what he has to say is really interesting, and we're going to get, we're going to get a little... Uh, um, maybe kind of focus on this a little bit and then we'll broaden the scope again at the end and, and kind of reintroduce what, how, how the Bible relates to some of this. But I think it is, one, really interesting, but I, I don't want to just talk about this in terms of interestingness because this is really personal, again. Some of you may have struggled with addiction. Many of you probably know someone who has. And so the point is to, one, help show us part of the danger of this in in terms of our own sanctification and Christ-likeness, but two, it's to help equip you to give you the right frame of mind to be able to help others. So we have four questions that we're trying to answer about addiction. The first question is, is addiction a disease? And and as we go through this again, we're, we're trying to Get on the same page about what it is so that, we can, so that we can talk about it from a biblical sense. Is addiction a disease? Addictions develop over time and what begins as a choice to drink or use a drug may later become something else. And this is going to be a very important concept right now. Addiction is a disease, but it is a certain kind of disease. It is a disease of Automaticity. I'm going to mispronounce that word all day. I promise you. It's, I, don't, I got to get the emphasis on the right syllable here. The, it is a disease of automaticity. And automatism 
develops in your central nervous system that cannot be eliminated. It can only be rendered dormant. Automaticity comes from the word automatic. That word you are probably familiar with, even if you're not familiar with automaticity. My first car in high school was a 1986 Mazda 626. Oh, baby, I love that car. Maroon on the outside as well on the inside. I don't know why anyone ever made the decision to just, yeah, maroon everywhere. But I love it. I love it. It was a manual transmission. We call it a stick shift sometimes. I had a clutch. I had to like move the thing around. Oh man, I remember the first time I took it out by myself after I had got my driver's license. I was so nervous and I'm like starting really slow and there's like a freeway overpass by my house and I remember being stopped at a red light like on the hill and being like super nervous. Yeah, some of you are like, nope, I pass. I'm not doing that, right? And that's the point is it didn't have to be that way. They invented automatic transmissions in 1940. That's how long they've been around. And the idea of an automatic transmission is it shifts for you. You don't have to do anything. The car does it by itself. And that's the idea of a disease of automaticity is that it's something, once you have it, it's something that kind of goes on its own. We have a number of things that are part of our normal everyday life that are automatic. Walking and talking are two really easy ones. You have to think about what you say, but you don't have to think about the mechanics of talking. That was not always true. If you've ever been around a toddler, they jabber nonsense all of the time, right? They are learning how to speak, how to use words. They get older and you start talking about very specific things. The difference between a TH sound and an F sound, right? That's difficult for some kids. The difference between TH and TH, right? It's hard. You don't have to think about that anymore. It is completely automatic. Not only is it automatic, but you couldn't forget it if you tried. You couldn't get rid of it. You couldn't just decide to forget how to walk. You could stop walking, at least for a certain amount of time, I suppose, but you couldn't forget how to do it. You would automatically just start doing it if given the opportunity. And that is the kind of disease that addiction is. When you, when you talk to addicts again and again, according to Dr. Sandor, that the core experience of addiction is powerlessness and loss of control. It's the experience of involuntary desires or cravings, unwanted thoughts and obsessions, and conflicted actions or compulsions. And the only way, once you have it, the only way to turn it off is abstinence. You will, once you have this inside of you, just like, just like talking, just like walking, swimming. If you know how to swim and you are in the pool, you will start swimming. That's just how it works. You could decide if you wanted, oh, I'm not, I don't want to swim anymore. I'm only going to stay in the shallow end. I'm going to stay where my feet can touch the bottom. But as soon as you leave the shallow end, if for whatever reason that happens, you will start swimming. And again, I, I suppose you could decide not to and drown. But 
you won't have forgotten how to do it. You can't take that away from you. And that's, that's the nature of an addiction, is somehow, and we're going to talk about how in a moment, but somehow this, this automaticity, this automatism develops inside of you And it's a loss of control. It's similar to an allergy in the sense that it is an abnormal reaction to something that is relatively harmless to people who don't have it. The difference if, if an addict and a non-addict have a drink or use a drug, they will have a very different reaction to it. Pineapple allergies run in my family. My mother found out suddenly and kind of awfully one day that she was extremely addicted to pineapple. She avoids them now. And now other people in my family have pineapple allergies also. My, one of my nieces is allergic to pineapple. My son has a mild allergy. Everyone else can eat it. It's no problem, right? The allergy is an abnormal reaction. And that's the idea of, of an addiction is not everyone has the same reaction. And again, we'll get into a moment why some do. But lots of people use drugs. Lots of people drink alcohol. Lots of people abuse drugs or alcohol, but only some are addicts. Only some. What is happening when you use any kind of intoxicating substance is you have this reaction, and what, what, what goes on is that your body, we, we, there's a scientific explanation for it all, but we refer to it as tolerance. Right? The more you use something, the more tolerant you become of it, which means the more you need to use it in the future in order to experience the same intoxication. And then when the substance is removed, your brain can kind of overcompensate, overshoot, trying to return to a normal state. And that's when you have a feeling of withdrawal, usually like a hangover, right? Again, this is how we commonly refer to them. Again, so, so the experience of withdrawal doesn't feel good and for most people is enough to keep them from doing this too often or too much. However, if you keep going, for some people, this is how addiction develops. We use the word relapse sometimes for someone who had been abstinent from drugs or alcohol and then they are using again. This is a really interesting concept in addiction science. Quitting is relatively simple for any addict. Staying quit is the really hard part. Mark Twain is famous for saying, giving up smoking is the easiest thing in the world. I know because I've done it thousands of times, right? It's, it's, easy, it's easy to quit. It is hard to stay quit. It involves choice. It's important to note that addicts don't re relapse. People relapse. So that is, is addiction a disease? Yes, and it is a certain kind of disease. A disease of automaticity. The next question we want to answer is, why me? Why or, or why this person I know? How is it that 
The addict that I know came to be addicted. 60 to 70% of all adult Americans will be exposed to alcohol, but only a fraction are alcoholics. Why does it happen? This actually has a lot of debate. People have conflicting ideas for what is it that makes someone, in this instance, an alcoholic. Generally speaking, there are three different factors, biological, sociological, and psychological factors. There's very strong evidence that something genetic is influencing alcoholism. If one of your biological parents was an alcoholic, you have a four times increased risk of becoming an alcoholic yourself, even if you are adopted and grow up in another family where there is no alcoholism. Just crazy, right? You, you would think that culture would have a huge influence, and it does, but genetics, the, the actual biology, is one of the biggest factors for putting you at risk for alcoholism. It's important to note that it's not exactly hereditary. Like something that qualifies as hereditary, like that means a very specific scientific thing. But for some people, there are hereditary factors involved in addiction. There are other things that explain why someone would be addicted and someone else wouldn't. Some drugs are more addictive. Some drugs are addictive for almost everyone while others are, weak, are weaker. The availability of social conditions and cultural expectations all contribute. You, you can't, generally speaking, get addicted to something if it is not readily available. You have to be able to get it in order to become addicted. Social conditions, it's a sad reality in our country and, and across the world that there may be an equal amount of drug and alcohol addiction across all socioeconomic groups. But the affluent, those who have money, are much better protected from the consequences of addiction because they have access to decent housing, good nutrition, legal representation, and timely medical care. So your position in life can affect whether or not you're able to save yourself from moving from abuse to addiction. So even though, so we don't actually have a, an exact formula, an exact understanding of why some people become addicted and some don't. We just have some basic principles that show us when it is more likely. When the intoxicating agent is readily available, especially in rapidly acting forms, that's a, that's a big deal how fast it acts. The risk of intoxication is increased. And when a host is demoralized, hasn't learned to use the substance safely, is exposed to heavy use among his peer group, has a genetic loading, or is poorly socialized into the surrounding culture, then the risk of addiction is also increased. So we only know when the risk is increased, not when it is sure to happen in any individual. We don't, we don't really know. They're working on it, but they don't know. So that answers why me. Does treatment work? And this is, this is really important. Does treatment work? I, we really have to talk about what treatment even means exactly in order to understand whether or not it works. It's nice when solving a problem is straightforward. Broken bones, go to the doctor, they put on a cast, they tell you exactly what to do. And bones generally heal like they're supposed to. There's, 
any number of other things like that. Sometimes when I have car problems, I do that thing that guys do where they open the hood to take a look. I don't know what I'm looking for, but you got to do it to say that you've done it when you bring it to the mechanic who actually knows what the answer is. He can actually diagnose the problem. If you've ever potty trained a child, you know what it's like to wish for a straightforward solution. Why won't they just do what they are supposed to do? A solution for addiction is much more difficult. And for addiction in general, because it happens over time, the solutions take time. And so you don't really know if something has worked as it were, for years. Recovery is rehabilitation. Treatments ultimately don't work or not work. It's the patient who works. And this is an important part, this is an important understanding of of what recovery is, what treatment is. It is the addict working. If addiction is the loss of control to automaticity, then recovery is the restoration of choice. Ultimately, how often someone drinks or uses doesn't determine addiction. This is is really important also. Determining, not only do we have to define what it means to be treated for addiction, but you have to define what it what it exactly means to be addicted and how do you determine if someone is simply an abuser of a substance or an addict of a substance. And it isn't, even though a quantitative, a quantitative analysis is helpful, that is how often they're using or drinking, how often or how much they use or drink, that is helpful. Ultimately, it is, an addiction is not what you do it is something that you have, right? It's a, it's a disease. It's an automaticity disease. And so there, for determining whether someone is an addict, there is no replacement for a clinical interview aimed at finding out whether the patient is struggling to control something that has developed a life of its own. So we need to take the focus off of what treatment professionals do and ask what addicts do for themselves to maintain abstinence. This might be something that, in your mind, especially if you have tried to help someone who is an addict and they were going, they wanted to go to one facility or another or one doctor or another to try and help them. It's easy to fall into the habit of asking, okay, like what what are your techniques? What are you going to do? What do you believe in? How are you going to treat me or my loved one? What is your success rate for helping people recovery? But the reality is that the way recovery happens is through the person doing for themselves, working for themselves, taking back Control through maintaining abstinence. Why do people stop abstinence? Why do people who, who, had, who had completely stopped using drugs or alcohol for a certain length of time, why do they go back to it? There are two main reasons that people don't stay quit. Forgetting and not caring. Forgetting and not caring. 
Dr. Sandor says, if a patient had achieved a significant period of abstinence on the order of months and had begun drinking or using drugs again in one of, he began drinking or using drugs again in one of two ways. Either he forgot that for him, there was no such thing as just one drink, hit, or whatever, or else he knew it and had gotten into such a state of emotional distress that he didn't care. So the key for staying quit is to not forget that for an addict, there is no such thing as just one. And to continue to care that you stay sober. And this is where, for Dr. Sandor at least, 12-step programs come in. I'm sure you've all heard of AA or any number of other 12-step programs. Dr. Sandor is a huge, huge advocate of 12-step programs because they are designed specifically to help with these two things, forgetting and not caring. This is a man who has over 25 years of experience working specifically with addicts. And listen to what he says. If we understand addictions or are automatisms, if we understand that recovery is based on abstinence, if we understand that people relapse because they forget or stop caring, and finally, if we understand how working a 12-step program helps people remember and care, then the goal of treatment must go beyond mere abstinence. Abstinence is necessary because it is the foundation for becoming a dedicated, active member of a 12-step group. The goal of treatment is to help patients be overcome obstacles to becoming dedicated, active members of a 12-step group. Guys, this is something that we can do. This is a very straightforward way that you can help someone who you know is addicted, or even for yourself, if you find yourself addicted, what should you do? What do you do? When you are giving someone advice, when you are trying to help them, one one of the main ways that you can help someone who has an addiction is to help them overcome obstacles to becoming dedicated, active members of a 12-step group. And what is interesting about this is part of, and many of you I'm sure already know this, part of the steps of a 12-step group is having a spiritual awakening is realizing your need for a higher power. And this is what's going to bring us back to the spiritual side of this. Because Dr. Sandor is not a Christian. It's, it's, it's really interesting. He is, he is not a believer. He's obsessed with C.S. Lewis. Throughout the, book, throughout the book, there were many quotes by C.S. Lewis. He is not a believer, but he is a firm, firm believer that... True recovery from addiction requires a belief in a higher power. And I think uh, what he has to say is fascinating. So the, the first two-thirds of the book were all what I've been talking about, this, the, the science of addiction. And the whole last third of the book is him talking about the importance of believing in God. I was, I was shocked as I was reading this. Listen to what he says. If life has no purpose beyond mere physical survival, 
If it is merely a succession of pains and pleasures followed by oblivion, then why stay sober for it? Why not get loaded? And here, medical science stands silent. The really big question, the real 800-pound gorilla in the living room of addiction treatment is not how people stay sober, but why. If I stay sober to save my marriage, for example, what happens if my wife dies or leaves me? If I stay sober to keep my job, what happens if, I, if I'm fired or when I retire? If I quit for my children, what happens when they grow up and leave home? If I quit to regain my health, what happens if I lose it to some other illness through no fault of my own? It is important, Dr. Sandor contends, that you have a reason that is bigger than yourself for the pursuit of abstinence from addiction. And so much of the research right now that's going into addiction is treating it like a disease, but that means for many doctors trying to come up with the right medicine that will help you to not be addicted anymore, which sounds great on the surface, but when you really start to think about what addiction is, you wonder how that could be possible at all. There are medicines now, I didn't know this until this week, there are medicines now that will block the high you get from heroin. And the idea is that you take this medication, then there's no reason for you to take heroin anymore because you won't get high from it. So why bother spending the money? Why bother doing it? It's not going to do anything to you. There are other medicines that you can take that will cause you, that, that cause you to become nauseous if mixed with alcohol. And so you take these medications and you will throw up if ever you drink. This is a fine idea I get. It's a fine idea in a sense. The problem is it only works for as long as you want to stay sober. If you decided that you wanted to be responsible and you had a device, you installed it in your car that gave you an electric shock every time you sped on the freeway, it would take you about two hours before you threw that thing out of the window, right? It sounds great. Oh, yeah, I want to be a responsible person until you experience the pain and suffering that comes from it. And then you're like, no, forget this. I was, I was happier breaking the law. And this is the problem with, with going so far down the rabbit hole of seeing addiction as a disease that you think, okay, well, how do we treat diseases? You take pills for them, and it's going to solve the problem because there is something more deep. There is something more fundamental about addiction. Read – this is oh, – man, this quote. I love this quote. This is a little bit long, so bear with me, but I think this is so important. The whole idea of addiction as a curable condition – is a result of not understanding what it is, of conceiving of addiction as disordered behavior rather than as a disease of automaticity. This misunderstanding leads naturally to a second error, fair, failing to recognize that quitting and relapsing are two entirely different problems that belong to two utterly different levels of human life. The first is material, the second spiritual. Although these two levels are related, they simply cannot be approached as if they were the same. 
At the material or biochemical level, the idea of a cure makes sense, as in the treatment of withdrawal symptoms. But at the spiritual level, recovery from addiction doesn't depend on fixing abnormal brain chemistry, but rather on the addict's willingness to take on difficult choices. The proof is obvious. Drugs that are claimed to prevent relapse after withdrawal is over only work as long as the patient wants to remain abstinent. Wanting to remain abstinent requires the willingness to face at least some suffering as the price of change. What sort of drug could give anyone that? Do medical scientists imagine that they can package meaning in a pill? Certainly chemistry can supply temporary relief from craving, sedation, tranquilization, even energy. But understanding, courage, selflessness? This is the fundamental question about dealing with addiction as a, as a disease. Is that ultimately what you need in order to overcome addiction, in order to stay quit... You need, to have a, you need to have a willingness to face at least some suffering as the price of change. You have to be willing to suffer. You have to have courage and selflessness. And what pill is going to give you that? What pill is going to give you the ability to say, yes, I will suffer. It is worth it. And my sobriety can withstand... Every problem, every suffering in life. Another quote. To achieve and maintain abstinence, an addict has to make difficult choices. Acting on those choices means making sacrifices. Making sacrifices means suffering. And suffering forces the addict to ask what his suffering is for. What it means. If it means nothing, then at some point... After the difficulties of quitting are over, there will be no good reason to not drink or use again. No medicine, no passively received treatment will ever produce that understanding. Recovery is work. It seems undeniable that a durable recovery from addiction depends on a sense that human life has some meaning beyond mere survival. 25 years of clinical practice has convinced me that without at least a hint of that meaning... The alcoholic or addict who is merely abstinent is at significant risk under the onslaught of injustice, misfortune, or simply the erosive effects of time itself. If you are merely abstinent, if you are an addict, the onslaught of injustice or misfortune or simple time in your life puts you significantly more at risk unless you have something deeper within you that gives meaning to the suffering that comes from life in general and especially for life for a recovering addict. So much of this makes me think about the Bible. So much of of what goes on inside the head and the heart of an addict. First, and maybe to this last point, we know as Christians that our suffering has meaning. 
Certainly there are general verses that talk about this. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That, that there is not anything in life that will not work out for the ultimate good of believers. But the Bible even specifically talks about meaning in our suffering in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The point of your suffering is to help you to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Suffering specifically is meant to increase your faith. That is part of the meaning of it. And it's not just that we have meaning in suffering. We know the actual meaning of life. We know the Creator. We know the Savior, John 8, 12. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We We have illumination for our life because of our faith in Christ. Jesus says again in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Part of being Christian is having the assurance that our lives mean something. That there is eternal value in them. And that even the bad things that happen to us are for our good ultimately and for the glory of God. I was also struck by how similar addiction is to sin in general. Addiction is not behavior. It's not something you do. It's something you have. It's a disease of automaticity. Sin, I think similarly, is not something we do. It's something that we have. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People don't stay quit because they either forget or stop caring. That made me, I don't know about you, it made me immediately think of Romans 7. How similar is this to the story of an addict when Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I do not want. Or for I, not, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's this sense of Paul being like, I can, I can visualize, I can think about the thing that I actually want to do. I can think about the good that I want. I can think about the sin that I hate. And I determine in my mind to do what's good and to not do what's bad. And yet, here I am again and again doing the thing that I don't want to do. That sounds astoundingly like addiction. All of us intend in our minds constantly to do what's right and to want to run away from what's wrong. And then two minutes later, ten minutes later, a day later, suddenly we are right back at doing the thing that we hate. That should give us compassion toward addicts. They are not so different than you who is not addicted to a substance. And in order to overcome our sin, just like for an addict to overcome their addiction, we need the work of the Holy Spirit to work in concert with our own work, our own choices. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 
We're told to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I don't think there is a more perfect verse summarizing what sanctification is. God tells you, work it out. And why should you work it out? Because it is God who is at work, both to will and to work. Your desires and your effort are both something that come from the Lord, even though you were commanded to work, to work it out. I hope you maybe understand the nature of addiction a little bit better. I hope you feel more compassion toward them, realizing the way the Bible describes the sin in your own heart. At the beginning of this week, I was inclined to say, in order to overcome addiction, be the best Christian that you can be and do whatever addiction science tells you. It's really, even though it needs to be more specific, it's not bad advice. And this is both for you and for anyone that you know. Pursue Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify you. And the fact of the matter is that positionally in Christ, you have been set set free from slavery to sin. But people struggle with different sins. Addiction happens to some people and not others, even though they're consuming the same amount of alcohol or doing the same amount of drugs. And we don't exactly know why. But how can you help point them toward Christ and help them overcome obstacles, become members of a 12-step group? I think that's a very straightforward thing that any of us can do with anyone that we know who is addicted to a substance. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for all that we have in Christ. Uh, We thank you that there is uh, freedom in Christ and that the power to overcome addiction uh, comes from uh, your spirit and it can come from uh, uh, the community of of being part of a a group who is committed to helping each other. Um, I thank you uh, for those of us who have never had to deal with this issue in our own lives or in the lives of others. That is a blessing, and yet you never know what's going to happen, and we need to be prepared to be able to help someone. Uh, and so I pray that, that all of us would be, would be ready uh, to show uh, helpful care to anyone in our lives who needs it. We love you, Father, and we pray this in your name. Amen.